Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, the much-ballyhooed, much-derided, much-delayed Green Line extension is finally complete. After four years of work, the line will open for service on Monday. Plus, Boston City Council approved a petition to allow 16- and 17-year-olds to vote in local elections if both the mayor and the state legislature sign off. And a local photographer's project titled Beautiful Dot showcases residents in the Dorchester neighborhood. That and more on our local news roundtable. Later in the show, let's face it, the holiday season is all about good food and wine. The special time of the year, especially the traditional foods of the season and those festive glasses of good cheer. Everyone knocks themselves out saying, oh, what should I get the wine lover in my life for the holidays? The answer is directly in front of you, wine. <laughs> Our food and wine gurus celebrate seasonal food and wine trends and offer up their lists of holiday gifts. But first, joining me now, Sue O'Connell, political commentator and analyst for NECN, NBC10, Boston, and co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Welcome back, Sue. Hey, Kelly. Hey. And Gin Dumptious, managing editor at the Dorchester Reporter. Hi, Gin. Hey, how are you? I'm great. Also with me, Mike Dean, co-writer of the Boston Axios newsletter. Hello to you, Mike. Hey, Kelly. <laughs> All right, I'm going to start off with you, Mike, because the Green Line extension, my God, it feels like we've been talking about it since, I don't know, centuries. <laughs> it's yeah, finally right. open. At least since the late 80s, I think. <laughs> the, it's finally opening. I mean, I just really didn't believe it, frankly. Uh, tell us all about what's happening as it is uh, doing the celebratory opening next week. Yeah, then there are going to be quite a lot of celebrations that coincide with Monday morning's launch of the finished Green Line extension into Medford. Um, this is a project that has been going on literally for decades. We joke about it, but it's been going on since the big dig. It's part of the mitigation projects that were, uh, you know, needed for when they built more uh, automobile infrastructure, they were required to do train infrastructure as well. And so an extension of the Green Line past um, the uh, uh, Lechmere station was one of those projects they wanted to do. And it's taken 30 plus years before it finally happened. Uh, there have been starts and stops. There's been funding that's been, you know, coming and gone. There's been federal and state administrations that have supported it and, and then, you know, pulled support or at least, you know, deprioritized it. But 
But on Monday, the first trains will finally go into East Somerville through, I think it's Magoon Square, Gilman Square, Ball Square especially, all the way up to the new station called College Avenue, which is right by Tufts University in Medford. So it's a big deal. It's a huge part of the you know Metro Boston area that didn't have any kind of uh, rail service. It wasn't connected to the MBTA system. Um, I think any you know Tufts students or Medford residents out there will know how important it will be that they can get into Cambridge. They can get into downtown on that green line. Um, and there's going to be you know some celebrations that is finally happening. That's finally real in Somerville and Medford uh, next week. And uh, yeah, they're gonna you know probably not smash a, a bottle of champagne over the first green line car, but pretty close to it for the maiden voyage. Sue O'Connell, they're estimating, I think they said 50,000 riders. Um, That's impressive. Yeah, you know, the demand for these types of lines, um, you know, I mean, you know, just to speak to the surprise that it's actually opening, all the stories talk to residents who are like, are you kidding? Is it really going to happen? Is it really, you know, they're just really in shock. But there's a number of places that have either ideas that uh, the the line should be extended or are in some some process. And as we move to a society where the car is harder to own, harder to park, uh, harder to drive, if you will, uh, the demand for this public transportation is exponentially growing. So it makes perfect sense that this, which we planned for 30 years ago, which we can you know, if my mother taught me anything, it's once they finish a road, it's already outdated. Uh, this demand has been in place for 30 years, so it's not surprising the numbers. But you think about the project to connect the MGH red line to the blue line somewhere, the extension of the blue line from uh, Wonderland and Revere through Lynn. Like, why did they stop at Wonderland in the first place? You wonder why connecting Lynn and beyond wasn't more important. But again, you know, to my points on this, also the challenges that it's gone through with the funding and the changes of administration and the federal and state funding. It's just an amazing, complicated thing that we need to make easier so we can be nimble enough to expand these lines uh, and public transport uh, as we move to a future which has fewer cars. I mean, it's just, it's, it's imperative that we focus on this. And I'm thinking that as I just cashed my check that I got from the state treasurer uh, for the surplus uh, that the state had and just thinking how we have to, we as a society and as lawmakers have to make public transportation funding a priority as we move forward. Um, again, uh, pick up on what Sue is saying, that this is actually bigger than just a mere extension, though we've been waiting a long time. And I want to emphasize that this is the extending from the northern end of the, the Green Line, as we know it now, from Leachmere to Union Square in Somerville and College Avenue in Medford. Um but, but what does it mean um, mo- more holistically in terms of, I, I think about it, uh, as Greater Boston standing as a uh, public transportation uh, place, really, where, where, where we support public transportation? Sure. Well, the, there's also the massive economic impact uh, you know that that's that's uh, that that's already been underway as the the project has been underway. You know, uh, rents going up, property values going up along the, um, you know, all along the the green line. It's the the, the economic uh, impact of this kind of stuff can't be understated, uh, and it's both good and bad. There are uh, potentially people who are going to be priced out or have already been priced out because this 
this this green line is coming. Um, and I think we can we can kind of look at uh, uh, south of Boston, where I grew up in, in Quincy, uh, when the red line was extended and they added uh, uh, several stations on on the Quincy leg into Braintree. You know, uh, the, if you go back to newspaper stories from back then, uh, residents were were uh, deeply opposed uh, for for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, and those that uh, the elected officials uh, uh, caught a lot of flack for for supporting that. Um, and then here we are, uh, you know, decades later, uh, and Quincy Quincy is booming. Uh, it's it's uh, you know some say it's the next uh, Somerville or the next Queens, um, and you can see that in the property values of of Quincy homes. Uh, th that that has also put it out of reach for for uh, for many people, myself included. So it's you know the, the, there there's two sides to this, and it's important that that public transit uh, remain accessible and and ease make it easy to get around the region because we we need it for jobs. We company companies need uh, reliable public transit to move their employees because that's more people that uh, who uh, won't be on the road adding to uh, uh, to to uh, to all the the pollution. Uh, but there's also the side of of uh, people getting pushed out and and uh, the the economic ripple effect from that. Um, I am fascinated by the city council's move to um, sign this petition to make it okay for 16 and 17 year olds to vote in local elections, um, and that would include voting for the mayor. Uh, let's take a listen to at large city councilor Julia Mejia. She supported the city council's approval of the petition uh, to allow them to vote in local elections. We have a lot of young people who are working, oftentimes two jobs just to help support their families, paying taxes, and uh, on the front lines protesting and trying to find ways to have their voices heard. What say you all about this? Um, and again, we should mention that this is not okayed unless the mayor and the state legislature sign off on it. Um, I know a number of you will think, well, that's not happening. Again, are you one of them? Well, I think it was actually uh, <laughs> Councillor Mejia who might have made the the joke about, uh, you know, we're, we're sending this bill up to Beacon Hill where, where uh, you know, is, is a graveyard for, for similar bills. Um, you know, I, I, we'll, we'll see what happens. I, I don't, I don't, anticipate much of an appetite uh, at the at the legislature uh, level for it. And part of that is, is you know, it, the legislature is full of incumbents and, and they don't necessarily want to grow the pool of voters who might uh, end up uh, tossing them out. Okay. So there is some self-interest there. Um, but with uh, with young people, you know, it's it's, uh, you know, giving them the, the, the right to vote. I mean, they, they have other rights when when they, they turn that age. Um, so, you know, there is the argument that that to, to give them the right to vote is is uh, is another thing that they can do. Um, I get, you know, some of the arguments against might be, you know, they're, they're, they're young folks, they're, they're, their brains are still developing. But, um, you know, I, I think that's, you know, I'll, I'll leave that to, to, folk, to experts better, better suited to that kind of analysis than, than myself. Um, you know, I, I I'm, I'm skeptical that it will it will clear the legislature and get to the governor's desk. But I've, I've been wrong before about other stuff. Um, Mike, not only do I want you to answer about whether or not the legislature might um, be open to this, maybe, but is this happening somewhere else in the country? I'm just curious about um, whether or not this is something that uh, Boston is trying to model itself after someplace, rather. Well, Gin's absolutely right that this is DOA on Beacon Hill. Um, <laughs> 
several a couple <laughs> other towns and cities in Massachusetts have already tried this. In Northampton, Lowell famously had been um, lobbying lawmakers for years and years. If you're at the state house, you always know the, the kids from Lowell would come in and you know try to make this pitch. Um, to go for it and you know in brookline cambridge a few other towns have done it and it just for all the reasons can said like it's not going to find any purchase really uh in the legislature to get that done um you know there are other groups that have been trying to get these things passed you know berkeley um in like the bay area of california places like that have lowered their age for certain things like school boards and you know very local elections things like that um and really the argument here for this is not just that they are you know functioning almost adults in society it's that these are the uh young men and women that were going to have to you know live with the uh impact of the laws that are passed and the people that they elect someone who's in their 80s may not see another uh, U.S. Senate election, but someone who's 16 and lives to be 80 is going to see, you know, a dozen U.S. Senate elections in their lifetime. Uh, and that just kind of puts into perspective, you know, the impact of these things and where some of these advocates are going from or where they're coming from and saying that, you know, there's much more skin in the game for teenagers than you probably think there is. Hmm. Do you agree, Sue? Uh, yeah, and I, you know, I have a number of complicated and contradictory feelings. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, yes, all everything that Mike just said and Jen just said is, uh, I do believe it's not going to make it very far, but it's always worth discussing and examining it. And of course, the young people are the ones who have the most to gain or lose in the future of our, our society and our country. And at the same time, um, you know, I also don't think that anyone under the age of 18 should be held responsible for almost anything that they do under almost the rarest of circumstances. Uh, yet at the same time, we allow people to uh, be drafted and go to war if they're 18 and buy houses if they can when they're 18, but we don't allow them to buy alcohol or cigarettes if, unless they're 21. You know, I mean, we just have this myriad of, uh, of a Jenga game of when you're of consent and old enough to do something. So um, I don't think we as a society have decided uh, what the age is that someone is an actual fully functioning adult in, in firing on all, on, uh, in all cylinders. You know, and having said that, I think it's a great effort to try and uh, garner and build political interest in a younger generation. Um, I know very few, I was not one of them. I know very few people who were very uh, paying attention to the political process when they were young. But I think it's a good exercise. I don't think it's going to go very far, but I do think it's worth us examining how we treat young people in our society. You know, if they work, they're paying taxes, right? We take their tax money, we'll mm -hmm. send them to war, but we won't let them get a beer. So there you go. Um, okay. Well, some, just to put a button on this, some might argue that there's a world of difference between 16, 17, and 18. So that's to be argued by professionals, but but there is that that commentary that's out there circulating. Yeah. Uh, but whether they're 16, 17, 18 or older, um, a lot of voters were uh, very interested in the uh, midterms. And um, we in Massachusetts, of course, experienced some historic wins, won by Democrat Maura Healey, who will be the first female governor in Massachusetts and the elected governor in Massachusetts and the first lesbian governor as well. Um, let's take a listen to her victory speech and then we'll talk after. To those who voted for me 
And to those who didn't, I want you to know I'll be a governor for everyone. And I with anyone who's up for making a difference in this state. Well, um, you know, that was very exciting at the um, at the time. The Bay State Banner has an interesting uh, piece asking whether Healy's um, diverse transition team will translate into an exclusive, inclusive rather, uh, administration. Sue, weigh in. Yeah, I think it will. I mean, you know, the, the banner is also comparing uh, Charlie Baker's um, uh, diversity scorecard to Deval Patrick's diversity scorecard. And I mean, the reality is that I, I think that there's uh, a lot more availability to find a diverse workforce on the Democratic side in the political world than it is on the Republican side, um, even under a, a moderate uh, progressive Republican governor like Charlie Baker. So, uh, and in um, uh, her office as attorney general, it was a, a fairly diverse uh, employee group. And she has, has demonstrated, I think, in, in both her campaign and as attorney general, that that's something that she's committed to. So um, I don't think we can make a lot of predictions about what kind of governor uh, Maura Healy will be, because she hasn't really told us very much. But I think, I think that she's going to have a diverse administration uh, and cabinet and, and workforce. So I think that's something we can count on. All right, Mike, make some predictions about what kind of governor she'll be and whether or not she'll have a diverse transition. Uh, I mean, a diverse administration based on her diverse transition team. Yeah, I think I would agree with Sue that that really is uh, the only indication we have right now of what kind of governor she's going to be uh, are the people that Healy's putting around herself now during this transition phase. Um, As of January 5th, I believe it is, it could be a Mm -hmm. different situation, but we'll likely know at least some of the cabinet designates that uh, Healy has selected um, who could very easily be the people who are on this transition effort. Um, You know, there's a few dozen names that are, you know, on on the, the transition committees that Healy has set up. So she definitely has a lot to pick from. Um, They have a a website. This is actually something that Baker did when he was elected as well, a website uh, where people can upload their resumes if they want a job in the administration. And Healy's staff are kind of sorting through those and well, they say they are uh, to make these decisions. But that really is the phase we're in right now. We don't know what kind of governor she's going to be. She was a a pretty uh, aggressively progressive prosecutor and attorney general. Right. As a politically progressive attorney general suing the Trump administration at the drop of a hat, you know, getting involved in other Democratic uh, you know, processes of what rather with other Democrats across the country, mostly against the Trump White House, things like that. And then she ran as a, you know, a pocketbook centrist, essentially, this past year. So we don't really know which Mara Healy we're going to get because the job of AG is very different from the job of governor. It's not like a legislative leader that has a track record of voting where you can say, well, she supported this and she voted against that and we know how how she'll go going forward. You don't know that about an attorney general because so much is wrapped up in kind of the legal red tape that uh, a lot of the person isn't exposed. So it's really anybody's guess where Mara Healy ends up. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with our local news roundtable guests, Sue O'Connell of NECN and NBC10 Boston, Gen Dupchus of the Dorchester Reporter, and Mike Dean, co-writer of the Boston Axios newsletter. All right, millionaires tax. Uh, it passed. 
my God, there was a lot of coverage uh, because it was one of those confusing ballot questions that required a, a lot of careful attention. And even then, I have to say, I think more people were confused than not. But the bottom line is it did pass, Mike. Um, and allegedly, the gains from this will go to education and transportation. But as many pointed out, that's not a guarantee. Um, okay. Also, allegedly, people with a lot of money who would fall into the millionaires category are moving their assets so that maybe the passage of this uh, ballot question is kind of moot? Oh, I don't know if it's moot. <laughs> it, it is likely to bring in quite a lot of money. Right now, the estimate is $1.3 billion uh, in fiscal 2023. Um, but of course, the rich are rich for numerous reasons. One of them is uh, protecting their riches. And a lot of that means um, their accountants, their uh, wealth managers are very effective at making it so that those taxes don't apply. I think um, that's something that we've all kind of learned at least the last few years uh, about this kind of wealth strategy and avoiding taxation uh, at all costs. And when there is a big new law like this, certainly someone who brings in a million dollars a year is going to do everything they can not to pay an additional 4% on that. Um, so a lot of this is going to, you know, turn out to be, you know, folks who leave the state of Massachusetts. So, you know, all of a sudden you're a resident of New Hampshire or Florida or something like that. No problem. No income tax at all. Um, an additional downside to the Commonwealth when that happens and when these taxes are kind of run around is that we don't get the 5% either. So it's not just that this additional 4% isn't being collected from these million million dollar makers. The flat 5% is also not making, not getting taken into the, the state tax coffers so that we could actually be losing some money. Now, it's unlikely that the state is going to get negative funds because of this new taxes in place. It probably will be around that billion, billion three uh, amount. Now, the other part of uh, the question was about how it's going to be spent. Now, of course, everything uh, you saw on TV through from the, the pro side was that it will be spent on education and transportation projects, roads, bridges, teachers and classrooms, things like that. And for the most part, <laughs> your leaders on Beacon Hill have committed to doing that. Whether or not they consistently do that is really anybody's guess. Um, so that's really a, a check in every five years or so and see where those tax funds are going, where they're being funneled. I have a pretty decent amount of faith that in the first few years, they will spend it on education and transportation. Those lobby groups, those advocates have a laundry list of things that they want to get spending on. But when things uh, you know, might not look as rosy economically, there might be some other things to pay for, like healthcare is a, a constant drain on uh, the tax coffers in Massachusetts, then yeah, the le legislature could start funneling that money in other places. There's nothing stopping them because uh, as the constitutional amendment that is now appended to our constitution says it is up to lawmakers to spend it as they wish. It's just a suggestion that they spend it on education and transportation. All right. Well, now I want to talk about a couple um, openings and closings. Closings, um, again, the Columbia uh, Road entrance, that seems huge to me. Um, I, I, Of course, you wrote about it, so it, it is very important. And I'm thinking about it in terms of its impact along with the Boston City Hall Plaza reopening. God knows we've, you know, talked a lot about 
so many things that could be improved there in terms of uh, being approachable for uh, the folks who live here and um, and who are voters and, and taxpayers. And there are attempts now to, to make that a little better. So I'd like to put those two together and have each of you kind of respond to it. And so, again, since the Columbia Road entrance is the big piece in the dot news, uh, why don't you start there? Sure. Uh, well, this was something that happened very abruptly uh, several weeks ago on a, on a Sunday night. Um, they, they put the gate up. Um, and this is right by the I-93 uh, off-ramp uh, at JFK UMass. And it's, it's you know, a walkway that quite a few uh, people uh, use to, to get to get, get into the main part of the station. Um, and, uh, and the T shut it down abruptly. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we subsequently learned uh, after pressing the T uh, on what the reason was, is uh, they, they had structural concerns. Um, and it's not just structural concerns there, but it's also at the Savin Hill uh, at MBTA station one stop over. Uh, they've actually shuttered the sidewalk and closed uh, uh, half, half of the, the doors available to folks coming off Savin Hill Ave. Uh, cars can no longer park on the, the Savin Hill Bridge that spans the, tra- the, the subway tracks and I-93. Um, and, and, you know, I went by uh, the other day and, and the, really it's, it's, a, it's a visual story of uh, a hobbled uh, MBTA, certainly on the Dorchester side. You know, it's, it's great to see the, the green line opening up its extension. Meanwhile, the, the red line, at least in Dorchester, um, is struggling. Uh, aside from the 20-minute waits for red line trains that, that people are, are, uh, are also having to bear, uh, it's, it's, uh, you go inside these stations, and, and the, the stairs are, are being patched together with concrete. There's the plywood panels on a practically brand-new uh, train station in Ashmont uh, covering windows. So, I, I, you know, talking to, to residents, it's very frustrating um, and one, one person who takes the red line regularly, an architect, told me it feels like we're holding it together with uh, duct tape and bailing wire. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, he's saying this in the context of, you know, you've got other countries, other cities that have built entire, entire new lines over the, th- the last 30 years. Uh, but it feels like in Dorchester, we're taking a step backwards. Well, I put that together with the opening of the Boston City Hall because both have impacts on uh, public space and um ordinary folks. And it seems to me that uh, it's interesting that after so long, the Boston City Plaza is trying to respond to some of the very issues that are connected to what you've just said with the red line and um, the Columbia Road interest in JFK and UMass Station. Um, And both have extensive impacts, uh, far-reaching, not just today. Um, I'd like you to weigh in, Sue, on both. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's exciting about the Boston City Hall Plaza, and again, that's another um, project that has been in the works uh, for a long time. And one will hope that it, you know, I don't want to open the whole discussion about how City Hall, <laughs> whether we love it or hate it, or what it looks like or what it doesn't. But um, I do appreciate uh, the amount of work that went into the planning of it, both under. Mayor Walsh, former Mayor Walsh, and Mayor Wu now, um, really trying to make that space accessible and welcoming, especially as, you know, we we continue to sort of reopen from COVID in a way, uh, and that area around Faneuil Hall and Boston Garden is, is starting to get populated again. It makes it exciting to see people using the space. And at the same time, my sort of, you know, project manager mind goes crazy when I look at issues like the JFK stop, you know, which is used by college students 
It's used by high school students. It is a major uh, a, a spot where people travel on a regular basis. Like, why isn't there a regular inventory walkthrough mm-hmm. um, uh, of every station to identify not just potential problems, but poten- problems that are hazards to, to people's health and life? Um, it, it shouldn't be that difficult to have someone walk through a station once a month to identify problems. And as we're doing all of this construction, especially down by the garden uh, in that area, and and finding um, really scary uh, uh, structural problems with our underground tea, you know, the, the aquarium spot, we could go on for a million hours about how that's aptly named for how often the water is there. So I, I, I hope kind of circling back to our more Healy discussion, that whomever gets put in charge of the MBT oversight also has an eye at um, keeping it both uh, running well, but also the safety issues of the day-to-day users. And hopefully, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could make our train stations like City Hall Plaza, like sort of the new airports that are opening, that it would be a place that you don't dread going to, that you could actually enjoy yourself while you're taking your commute. Yeah. Um, Mike? You know, I think one thing in defense of the MBTA, uh, when you, especially just looking back at JFK Station, that walkway was closed less than five years ago for the better part of a year already. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they were doing kind of like surface renovations to it at the time, and now this is a structural problem they've identified. But you know that stairway where uh, the the jogger fell to his death uh, because the stairs collapsed below him, that had been fenced off for months. Uh, prior to that. So it, it's not that they aren't identifying the safety issues. It's that they are, and then they just stay there, and yeah. they're not getting yeah. fixed. Yeah. So, yeah, and maybe this is something that Governor Healy will uh, take into account. She has said that she's going to name a, a new top safety person for the MBTA that kind of uh, answers to her, essentially, and like that is the job. There is no uh, 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 T manager exclusively dedicated to safety. She's going to implement that, uh, according to her. Um, but what does that mean of a dedication to uh, regular maintenance, routine maintenance, improving these things? Because right now we just have infrastructure that fails, gets boarded up, fenced up, and then get fixed, uh, gets fixed eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, there is some kind of gap here. Yeah. But the safety is being implemented. Mm-hmm. Aside from the guy who jumped over the fence, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, on that stairwell, um, there haven't been that many safety problems. It's just that there's a, no more access. Just these things are boarded up. All right. This is a re- really quick round, Robin, because I have one more thing I want to talk to you about before we get out of here. Voice of the T. Frank Oglesby, um, they've decided to replace him. He retired in 2016, but he's been voicing those messages since 1997. And now they want to replace him with a text-to-speech synthesizer. In case you forgot, here's what he sounds like. The next Red Line train to Ashmont is now approaching. Okay, real quick response from each of you. Why? Why did we have a human doing this to me? No, why are they taking the human away? <laughs> well, we've had this technology for years, Callie. I think most people are are ready for the flexibility of, you know, a robotic voice. We we listen to driving directions, we listen to Siri, we listen to this all the time. Uh 
you know, having to track someone down to record something and put it into a system as an audio file <laughs> is is cumbersome and very 20th century. So, okay, bah humbug uh, on one. you. No, and I love. I love uh, <laughs> no, no, you're, I'm done with you. Well. Moving on, Sue. What do you say? <laughs> I agree with you, Callie. <laughs> no, I, I I hear Mike's point and I understand that, but at the same time, it's really not that. It took us a hundred years to get the green line extended. It's not like we have to add things every day to the announcement. Thank you. Right. All right. You know, so All right. I'd like to have a human voice. All right. Okay, again. Well, I, I'm I'm gonna be twitching every time the a computer says Quincy instead of Quincy. So. <laughs> there you go. All right. And since I have you, you get to final seconds to talk about that great um exhibits going on in the public libraries in Dorchester. Um that's they're beautiful. I saw the photos called Beautiful Dot, by the way. Sure. And if you go on our website, .news.com, uh, you'll you'll see some of these photos. Uh, Mike Ritter is the photographer and, and coming out of the pandemic, he wanted to, uh, you know, show the beauty and diversity of, of Dorchester, which is the city's largest and, and most diverse neighborhood. Um, so he set up uh, uh, basically a camera operation throughout the, the, the neighborhood's um, uh, public libraries and, and would just take pictures uh, to, to folks who wanted to come and get their family uh, family portraits. Uh, you know, I ran into him at Open Streets Dorchester uh, outside the Fields Corner Library, and people were just, they were, they were waiting in line. He was, I, I, I wasn't able to talk to him because he was so busy and people wanted their photo taken. So it's, it's just a, it's just a feel good story and, and uh, some beautiful pictures uh, resulted. And it's not your staid portraits at all. I mean, the pictures are really alive. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. I love it. It really is a big, a beautiful expression of the Dorchester uh, neighborhood. So, um, Anyway, that's a great way to end this conversation. Um, we're going to send a text that is synthesized to Mike so he knows it's over. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, I want to thank you all for joining me today. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks, Kelly. <laughs> thank you. Sue O'Connell is a political commentator and analyst for NECN NBC10 Boston and co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Gen Dumchus is managing editor at the Dorchester Reporter, and Mike Dean is a co-writer of the Boston Axios Newsletter. Coming up, I wait all year to have an excuse to indulge in some of my favorite holiday comfort foods and to toast the season with glasses of good cheer. This year, nostalgia is on the table with the return of the fruitcake, and Boston is finally embracing wine bars. And our food and wine contributors offer gift ideas for the foodies and wine lovers on your list. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 